Happy Friday, everybody, and welcome to The Information's 411, your weekly podcast brought to you by the Crack Reporting Squad at The Information. Hope you're all enjoying your nice long holiday weekend. Uh, I know for me, just excited to finally get a break from the quiet around here and just get to hear some fireworks at night, you know, just a little change of pace. So today's episode, uh, we've got two topics whose only relationship to each other is that they're both in the news. First off, I am digging into the challenges of moderating hate speech online. That's only been the biggest story in social media over the past month. In previous episode, we've talked about Facebook and Twitter and where they stand on the topic. This week, Reddit made news by announcing that they had pulled down hundreds of what they deemed offensive subreddits, including r slash the Donald, which is an influential group that supports the president. So I had a long conversation about this topic with John Redgrave, who is the CEO and co-founder of Centropy, a tech company that is designed to help moderators at tech platforms root out abusive behavior and content online. And they're an interesting company because one of their early investors is Reddit's co-founder and recently departed board member Alexis Ohanian. And so John and I had a good chat about why hate speech festers online, how the viral nature of social media contributes to that, and also why the evolving terms that people use online can make monitoring hate speech so hard to do. And then because it's a holiday weekend, I turn it over to our travel business correspondent, Corey Weinberg, who spoke to John Staff, the CEO of Getaway, which is a startup that builds cabins in the woods. And so uh, John and Corey talked about where the travel industry is headed and how it's actually coming back to a certain degree. Uh, but first, my talk with John Redgrave at Central Peak. So, so John, it seems like content moderation and the nature of online conversation has gotten a lot more aggressive and negative or invective-based in the last couple of years. Do you see it the same way? I mean, what do you see as, as the kind of most recent trends in the way people communicate online that has caused it to be such a hot-button topic? There is a, a famous public forum, one of the first public forums called The Well. Um, and the creators of The Well... When they talk about what they created, and this was, you know, in, in the early days of the internet, they talk about how when they introduced anonymity and an open forum, that human nature o- allowed for people to be terrible to each other, right? And their biggest problem at the well was how do we moderate content? This was 30 plus years ago, and we're still having the same conversations. Now, I think... Um, you know, the, the advent of social media companies in particular, kind of these trusted nodes or networks of people and the broadening of access has created more virality. And also, as we think about kind of our democracy, um, as well as, you know, the, the very public um, campaigns that are going on to fight against racism, harassment, you know, you think about what's happened in the, you know, even in the past month, but all the way back to the Me Too movement, there's been more of a focus on how are online communities contributing or, or are they actually the cause of this normalization of behavior? Well, so much of the internet, and you talked about forums from 30 years ago. I remember coming up myself as, you know, someone being more interested in the internet and the appeal was you can find people of your interests all around the world and, and create a community just around that. 
um, which is a very appealing process. I mean, it makes you feel less alone. Why do you think that has also translated into such, um, you know, a narrow-minded view of the world that's caused kind of hate-based communities to flourish? I think what's happened is people get into these thought bubbles or these echo chambers, and it's the only place where they spend time. Um, and as a result, there's there's this information that's constantly available. I mean, you basically can pick up your phone and go into you know what amounts to at times like your local KKK meeting, right? And so I think what's what's happening is there's so much positive good that can come from these communities, but there are these pockets that exist and those pockets, you know, have the, the companies have not spent enough time and energy to move people outside of these pockets. And, and I would go as far as saying that they have not done a good job of actually removing the virality of these pockets. Right. And that's actually the challenge is a 15 year old kid could stumble into, you know, a group of, of white nationalists and get red pilled. And, and that's, that's the problem. Which is to say that they would, you know, sort of their whole worldview would shift and more towards, you know, the kind of singular narrow minded and, and, and negative mindset that these communities push. That's exactly right. I mean, there's a, there's a fairly famous individual called Caleb Kane, um, who now works with, uh, Cynthia Miller Idris at American University. And Caleb Kane was red-pilled um, into neo-Nazism, you know, what we would refer to now as white supremacist extremism, by watching YouTube videos. Because the algorithm at YouTube was constantly promoting content because he had seen a piece of content that may have had some of these ideals, but it kept pushing him further and further down that rabbit hole. Like, that's the challenge that we face today. So a lot of this gets into, you talk about virality and like the very nature of these services is to surface up content or people that you would uh, connect with one way or the other. And it seems like that is very much at odds at broadening people's worldview, right? That, or, or, or exposing you to things that would challenge your uh, intellectual premises and, I mean, hopefully cause you to, to move away from the more hateful ones. So I've always thought about this problem of abuse online in two parts. There's the, can we detect that this is a problem on our site or on our platform? And will we take a stand against it? Right? And so when you think about the likes of Facebook, they are incredibly good at detecting these types of content. But their willingness to take a stand has really been called into question. And, you know, over the past seven days, what have they lost? Almost $100 billion in market cap as a result of the Stop Hate for Profit campaign, which by the way, I think is a wonderful campaign. Um, because if you can start to get the companies to recognize that this is not just a, a issue of societal good, but this is something that deeply impacts their bottom line, that's the way to drive action, unfortunately, right? But that is the way to drive action. And it's something that, um, you know, I've talked to my investors who have built some of you know, the largest social media companies that we know. You know, going back to the foundations of the internet, one of them, uh, just as much as we should build, you know, open communications and communities where people can connect is we are almost free speech absolutists. And we think that any action technologically, 
that reduces that or, or monitors that is uh, an abrogation of those rights. It seems to be changing, or at least people are reconsidering that notion. I mean, where do you stand on that? And do you think it was a mistake that so many Silicon Valley leaders clung onto that even through all these periods of, you know, bad online discourse? In protecting the individual's right to free speech, we've actually lost kind of the responsibility to free speech. And in many ways, we've created an environment where, you know, trolls can silence individuals, right? So one individual's right to free speech is allowing them to violate the right of thousands of other people's right to free speech. How are they able to do that? I think the way that they're able to do that is by constantly attacking individuals for their ideas and then their voices become silenced. So so it's this idea that if I'm a group of trolls and I want to silence, let's say a journalist, right? The fastest way for me to do that is to constantly attack and barrage them online, whether that's in Twitter, whether that's in the DMs, in other platforms. And it becomes this really scary situation where, you know, a group of people can work to silence a much larger group of people through their actions in these communities. Reddit, which has been in the news this week because um, the company decided to kick off a couple of different forums, including, you know, a Donald Trump and an influential Donald Trump forum. Where do you think Reddit fits into the scheme of uh, the nature of online discourse and uh, you know, how it's monitoring these things. I think Reddit has taken extraordinary strides in the last couple of days to ban 2,000 communities. Um, and, you know, I think what, what Reddit provides is a window into, you know, what hate can look like more broadly in social media companies, right? And as I, as I think about my relationship with Alexis, um, you know, there's been this realization that there is hate and harassment on Reddit's platform. And now it does appear that they're going to take a stand against it, right? They've been very public about the changes that they're making in terms of their content policies um, in banning communities, not just quarantining communities, but actually banning communities. So I think they're headed in a really positive direction, frankly. Um, but it, you know, like any of these platforms, it has taken some time to come to the realization that um, this is an opportunity to actually improve not just their platform, but society. Do you think that the issue for most tech companies is a technological one, or is it just a philosophical one in terms of deciding whether or not they really want to take this head on? I think if you're talking about Facebook, I think it's a philosophical one. Um, like Facebook has one of the most incredible machine learning cores of any company on the planet. So I have high, a high degree of confidence that they can do a good job detecting these problems. I think for a lot of the other companies, it's both a technological and a philosophical question, right? Is can we actually detect how quickly language shifts, how quickly content shifts on these platforms? And the answer in a lot of cases is not yet, right? So I'll give you an example, Tom. Very recently, um, after the tragic killing of Ahmaud Aubrey, we've seen a huge uptick in the use of the word jogger as a replacement for the N-word. Like this is adaptive behavior that frankly is really hard to catch. 
like the context in which something is used is critical, right? So if you're in a forum, um, you know, let's, let's look at Twitter for a second, actually. If you're on Twitter and people are having a discussion about, you know, rap lyrics, you might see the N-word pop up, right? And the context of that might be okay. And so you have to be able to understand the context in which something is being used. So the difference between jogger being used in a running forum versus jogger being used in the context of a white supremacist group is very different. I know this is probably a lot to put on you, but do you expect that with the decline of, of that type of uh, you know, activity online that there would be real world benefits, real world implications? Absolutely. I, I 100% believe there would be real world benefits. Um, you know, we see constantly content shifting from URL to IRL, right? So I'll give you a great example of this. When coronavirus hit the United States, we saw a massive rise in anti-Asian racism. And in particular, we saw new terms emerging online. And because those terms became normalized in the online communities, I would go as far as saying that we saw a huge rise in real-world attacks on Asian people. So I absolutely believe that if you can stem the tide of abuse online, that you will see less hate in the real world. All right. Well, here's to hoping. Um, Thanks so much for joining, John. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tom. All right, now for the second segment in the show, we're going to be giving our summer travel update. And here with us is our summer travel and all year round travel correspondent, Corey Weinberg. Corey, how is the travel industry faring during COVID? Obviously not well, but has it picked up at all? If you're running an airline, if you are running a hotel, um, you know, things are tough. Um, but some of the upstarts, some of the startups, some of the companies that we like to cover are actually seeing, um, you know, some tailwinds right now. Um, they're raising money. They're actually seeing a boost in business. Um, Airbnb is starting to talk about a turnaround. And as people are traveling for the July 4th holiday, you know, it, it's it's showing that like people are actually traveling in some capacity right now. It just might look a little different. Do you think that there's uh, even potentially companies that are flourishing during this period or at least are well positioned as we're kind of stuck inside during you know the travel season there's a few i mean the travel market has certainly shrunk you know and that hurts big companies that are in that market but those that are maybe catered towards people who are traveling by car or uh, are looking to go into the outdoors um, companies like hip camp which is a airbnb type marketplace for campgrounds uh, there are some RV startups that are doing well. Those companies sort of are are seeing a boost right now. Um, and so is a, a startup that we talked to today called Getaway. Um, they are a startup that uh, has this interesting business model where they actually build small cabins in the woods. Oh, that sounds very peaceful. Um, and, and I mean, how does that work? It is, I think it's peaceful. I've never done it. But we talked to John Staff, the CEO, today about sort of how the company, how he built the company, what it's been facing during the pandemic, um, and sort of how it's actually been getting a boost at this very unlikely time. I'm 
joined by John Staff, the CEO of Getaway. Thanks for having me, Corey. So tell me a little bit about your business. It's, it's, it's an interesting one in the startup world. Tell, tell me a little bit more about it. We put tiny cabins in the woods roughly two hours from major cities, and we rent them out to folks specifically so they can disconnect and recharge, so they can be off. There's no Wi-Fi, there's a cell phone lockbox, there's a big window that looks into nature, and what we try to get you to do while you're there is absolutely nothing. <laughs> and, and is that the kind of thing that you think people want right now? Have people been, you know, generally, how, how is business going? Yeah, the honest answer is I, I panicked at the beginning of COVID because I thought, oh no, those, those of us who are, you know, fortunate enough to be able to work from home now are working from home and we're living at home. And the last thing anyone is going to want to do after this or during this is go to a little you know, home and do nothing. Um, and then I quickly felt uh, the reality of being on Zoom calls for six or eight hours a day and doing Zoom happy hours after work and realized that Getaway's pitch, which has always been about you know, getting away from the city, getting away from work, and getting away from technology uh, was, was still relevant and that there was still value in, in, in getting away from it all. And in terms of scale, I think you have more than 400 of these cabins. What do these things take to build? What do they look like? How are you financing them? Yeah, so the cabins are, they're about 136 square feet, so they're small. Uh, they've got the big window looking into nature, so that makes it feel a little bit bigger than it is. There's a queen bed, there's a little kitchenette, a two-burner stove, uh, a sink, there's a bathroom, there's a shower, hot and cold running water. Outside, there's your own private fire pit uh, with Adirondack chairs and a picnic table. You know, and we lay these properties out such that, you know, there'll be 30 or 40 other tiny cabins, but you have your own space, your own view of nature. When you're at your fire pit, you don't see other people at their fire pit. Uh, the cabins are designed by us and prefabricated offsite. Uh, and then they're brought to these properties we find in really, really beautiful and quiet and serene places. Uh, about two hours outside of major cities where, where we do the work to get the land ready. And then to finance them, we've, uh, we've kind of been this hybrid company where we've raised some you know, venture uh, capital type dollars and, and growth equity dollars. And then over time, we've gotten a little bit smarter and realized that we shouldn't be deploying those very expensive dollars into, into dirt work uh, and cabins. So you know, we've been able to use some real estate joint venture structures and, and, and occasionally some debt to, to save on that front. Do you think that do, is the future of travel? You know, do you think it is more? Does it look more like you uh, than it does? Uh, it might look like a downtown hotel. I think the short-term future of travel certainly is more rural than urban. As as people look to kind of escape and and get into nature, where you know science has proven that when we're sitting under a tree with rustling leaves, we actually feel better, and you can measure the improvement to our cortisol levels and our and our blood pressure. And I think. You know, at a time that is as anxious and difficult as what we're living through now for, for so many reasons. Uh, the idea of like, yeah, give me a little bit of that, that, that improvement on my cortisol uh, is pretty compelling. So, you know, I think that is a, a short and medium term trend for sure. And not just COVID related, like, you know, the rise or the, you know, the return of camping um, has been, you know, been ongoing uh, from from pre-COVID. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us and, and good luck the rest of the year. Thanks, Corey, to you as well.
All right, that is our episode. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you again to all of the contributors that made this episode happen. John Redgrave at Centropy, John Staff at Getaway, Corey Weinberg, happy birthday. Uh, a little belated, but thank you for doing our travel segment. Uh, and as always, Ariel Markowitz is our producer. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a good long weekend. Happy 4th. See you back here next time.